You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. And the three main threats to water quality we identified as sediment, nutrients, and E. coli, which is an indicator of fecal contamination. In today's feature report, we have the latest edition of Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment. In today's edition, we begin coverage of Lake Monroe. How healthy is it and how long will it survive? Also coming up in the next half hour, Artificial Shopping on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. But first, your local headlines. On August 16th, the Bloomington City Council held its weekly meeting. Agenda items included an amendment to Title VII of the Bloomington Municipal Code to ban the practice of feeding deer within city limits. Bloomington Municipal Code City Clerk Nicole Bolden delivered the resolution. Ordinance 2316 to amend Title VII of the Bloomington Municipal Code entitled Animals regarding updating and harmonizing Chapters 01-26, 40, 54, and 56 of Title VII of the Bloomington Municipal Code. The synopsis is as follows. This ordinance makes several changes to Title VII of the Bloomington Municipal Code to reflect current and best practices, update the dangerous animal definitions, add a deer feeding ban, increase the amount of certain fees, and add additional time to the appeals process. Virgil Souter, director of Bloomington Animal Shelter, spoke on behalf of the resolution beginning with the proposed changes on how the city defines dangerous animals. Um, The first um, major changes um, that our proposal are to our dangerous animal ordinances. Um, These proposals were actually put together by a joint um, task force with the City Animal Control Commission and Monroe County Animal Management Commission. Um, And the Monroe County um, has passed this section of the updates, the dangerous animals, um, into their code as well. Anyone caught feeding deer within the city will face fines of $50, which would be doubled should they be caught again within the same year and for every offense thereafter. Councilmember Rollo expressed his support for the deer feeding ban, but inquired about the possibility of initiating a count of the total deer in the city to prevent the prevalence of tick-borne diseases. My question, and I support, I support this uh, feeding ban. Uh, one aspect of the report that isn't relevant anymore because it's been, um, it's been elaborated on and, and described further by the Ball State study is that urban deer are, are, are really different in terms of behavior than deer outside of the city. That is, they stay put. And so they, it's, it's almost like an island. At least the females and their daughters stay put. And so it gives a potential for uh, control of those animals' population um, and you know, we we concluded that a lethal approach was um, in the city was probably impractical for a variety of reasons. Souter responded, 
As far as looking at deer counts and deer numbers, um, I do agree if it's, if it's the will of the, the city and the, this council to reduce the number of deer, that a deer count um, is the first place we need to go. Um, but again, I, I struggle to, to, to do a count if we don't know exactly why we're doing the count. Um, so I agree if, we, if the goal is to reduce the numbers, the deer count is, is the first place to go. Um, when it comes to tick-borne diseases, um, the studies that I have read and been exposed to, um, reducing deer population does not necessarily coincide with reducing tick population. Um, and that is something that tick populations and tick-borne diseases is something that is being monitored by the Monroe County Health Department. Okay, uh, I guess we differ. I'll send some links to papers that indicate the opposite. Thanks. And I, I'm happy, I'd be more than happy to hear those. Councilmember Jim Sims expressed concerns about tax dollars regarding the tracking and microchipping of dangerous animals, to which Sauter replied. First thing I just want to say is that you mentioned a token cost with regard to... Um, monitoring dangerous and vicious animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just really hate that term. When we're talking about in particular tax dollars and money that's spent token anything. So I guess my only question there is, do you estimate <clears throat> that that actual cost is higher or lower or about, right? That's that's an that's an excellent question. Um, the actual cost, just based on salary of the animal control officer and the amount of time needed to do um, the checks, um, the actual cost is higher than that. Okay. Um, and if a dog, in particular, needs microchipped, how is that handled? Is that something that your office does, or or do we send them to a vet? Or what's the, what's the about the approximate cost? to the animal's owner yeah. to have it microchipped. Yeah, and so with, with the microchip, the cost um, does vary a bit depending on where it's done. It is something that any vet in the town can do. It's something that the animal shelter does. Um, Monroe County Humane Association also does it, and um, um, Bloomington uh, Pets Alive does it as well. Um, last checked, both um, the shelter, um, Bloomington Pets Alive, and Monroe County Humane Association, we all had the same cost, which was just $15. Um, I will use this time to say if there anybody with pets out there, microchip is a wonderful thing. It helps us greatly if that animal gets um, out to get it home as soon as possible. So I would definitely plug those microchips, not just for dangerous dogs. Councilmember Sims concluded by asking Sauter about the consequences that owners with animals classified as dangerous would be met if such owners were caught violating Title VII ordinances. For the removal of animals, is would you do we have to go to court for that or how is that handled do we just say you violated ordinance here comes law enforcement and we take i mean how does that happen that's that's an that's an excellent question um our first case is we do take the the determination to the owner um, if there are any um, hesitancy in turning them over at that point um, normally we would have to get a, a warrant to go in and seize seize the animal um, often at this stage um, because of what's happened um, the amount of fines and fees that have gone um, often owners work with us but if not we would have to go that route 
Bloomington resident Julie Gray spoke in support of the deer feeding ban with the hope that it would ensure the safety of Bloomington residents and a reduction of the city's deer population. So I wanted to come tonight to say um, hooray to the city for proposing this prohibition on deer feeding. Um, I think you may know the saying that fed wildlife are dead wildlife. It, it's never a good idea to feed wildlife. It, for all the reasons for, for, uh, Mr. Souter mentioned. Uh, so we, we um, I've worked with a large number of animal advocates here in the city on the deer issue and on other animal um, issues. And so I, I felt that we want to come here and say thank you for doing this. Um, I also just wanted to use the, the chance to reiterate that there is a large group of us who are very eager to work with the city on the deer population question. Um, and I think since the last uh, discussion about the deer kills at Griffey, the city has seen that um, the kills are costly and ineffective. And since that time, um, there's been an, a huge number of cities and a great mass of scientific evidence that indicates that um, fertility control is much more effective at reducing the population once and for all, and the problem gets eliminated. So if the discussion comes up again, um, the animal advocates and I would love to talk about it and reconsider the way. But this is a great evidence, this measure here, of the city caring for humans and wildlife and how they interact. And I, we really thank you for doing this. During final comment, Councilmember Kate Rosenbarger affirmed her support for the ban, but asked that the issue of food on the ground be considered within the near future. Thank you for this. I am in support of it. I would potentially like to see maybe in a, a year from now like what updates we need to make, um, if any, on this for animals eating on the ground. Thanks. In conclusion, Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith provided advice to members of the community regarding the feeding ban before affirming her support for the resolution. Um, I would still recommend if anybody has neighbors who feed their deer to just go talk with your neighbors um, instead of you know, calling animal care control directly first. You know, try just the neighborly approach and if that doesn't work then uh, animal care and control can help. But um, I just talked to my neighbors today, as a matter of fact, who put out corn for the deer, and I said, we're going to be voting on this, and I think it's probably going to pass. So, so they were very nice about it and said, oh, we didn't mean to cause any problems. So um, they have a lot of critters other than birds that eat at their bird feeders, but that's, that's another, another issue. So thank you, everybody, for your work on this. I will be voting yes. The City Council approved the resolution unanimously. The Bloomington City Council will meet again for the 2024 budget hearings on August 28th. Lake Monroe is the largest man-made lake in Indiana. It provides drinking water to over 130,000 residents and generates more than $40 million per year in recreational spending, according to the Friends of Lake Monroe. The lake was constructed in 1964 and filled with water the next year 
by the Louisville District of the Army Corps of Engineers. Before the lake served as a drinking water source for area residents, it was intended as a method of flood control for the White River. Maggie Sullivan, watershed coordinator for the Friends of Lake Monroe, discussed the history of Bloomington struggling with water supply issues prior to Lake Monroe. So Bloomington, like most of southern Indiana, does not have great water sources in terms of drinking water unless you're right by a river. And if you've noticed, Bloomington is not close to a river. So we've had water supply issues for decades, centuries. Um, And so various strategies have been tried. There are a ton of lakes around that were built for water supply and didn't work out. So Leonard Springs is one that didn't hold water. Uh, Twin Lakes is one that didn't hold water. Uh, Griffey is one that held water, but it's we basically over... We, we needed more water by the time it was done constructing than what it could provide. A University Lake IU built to provide their water when they didn't think that Bloomington could um, provide enough. Lake Lemon was constructed as a drinking water source for Bloomington and was our drinking water source along with Griffey for a while. And Lake Monroe was actually built largely for flood control on the White River. And so that was the impetus behind building it, but quickly everyone also knew that it was necessary as a drinking water source for Bloomington. Uh, The city and the university would not be here without Lake Monroe. In 2022, the Friends of Lake Monroe published the Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan. The group spent three years putting this plan together, which identified top threats to the water quality in Lake Monroe and provided an action plan to address those threats over the next two decades. Sullivan expanded on the threats to Lake Monroe's water quality. And the three main threats to water quality we identified as sediment, nutrients, and E. coli, which is an indicator of fecal contamination. And why we really care about those things, I mean, the sediment... Yes, there is a siltation issue that we need to think about, but in the shorter term, sediment carries nutrients, and then nutrients also can arrive with fertilizers or with manures or human manure, and those nutrients stimulate algal growth, and particularly it's the cyanobacteria that the blue-green algae that we worry about, because when we have big spikes in blue-green algae levels, it makes drinking water treatment a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive, and it causes recreational advisories on the lake. So right now, I think it's a, a yellow level advisory. So if you swim in the lake, you're advised to shower afterwards with uh, soapy water. You're advised to be careful about taking your pets in the lake because pets are more sensitive and, you know, dogs are likely to lick their fur when they've been swimming or just open their mouths in the water. And uh, so we worry about their health. There are other lakes in Indiana and other states where they've had cyanobacteria, the blue-green algae, have started producing toxins. And then that gets even worse in terms of trying to keep the drinking water safe and worrying about pet health and even human health. We have not had that issue here, and I hope that we don't. But, you know, that's another reason to try and keep those levels down. And what the blue algae... The blue-green algae really likes it when it's hot, it's dry, the water's not moving much, and there's lots of nutrients. 
we can't control the weather. We can't determine if there's going to be a rainstorm to mix things up or if we're going to have six weeks of drought. We can't control the water temperature in a lake this size, but we can work on the nutrient level. We can work on reducing the amount of nutrients that get into the lake, and that's really what our focus is. Um, e. coli is a concern in some of the streams that feed into Lake Monroe. We haven't seen, the more recent data does not show an issue in the lake itself, um, but again, if it gets worse in the streams, it could become a problem in the lake as well. And it's just an indicator that there is some sort of fecal contamination getting in, whether that's human waste coming from failing septic systems, or that's animal manure from livestock operations, wildlife, there's a lot of different potential sources. Local residents have complained about the smell and taste of Bloomington's tap water, especially late into the summer and throughout the fall. The city of Bloomington's Department of Utilities said that the foul taste and smell of the drinking water does not pose a risk to public health. According to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, the cause for the reports is the result of blooming cyanobacteria, or blue-green algae. As temperatures continue to rise in Indiana as a result of climate change, this algae can grow later into the fall than expected. Sullivan describes how this algae impacts the smell and taste of the water. Yeah, so blue-green algae have a couple of chemicals they produce. MIB and geosmin are two that get talked about a lot. Geosmin is actually what makes beets taste beady. Uh, which is not necessarily a taste you want in your drinking water. And so here in Bloomington, it used to be in the 90s, it, we'd get a little bit of a lake water taste uh, in the water pretty much all summer, but it was not as acute and people kind of got used to it because kind of built over time. Uh, and then more recently, we've had some years where it's very noticeable in the late fall. Uh, and there were a few years back in uh, the 2010s where the drinking water plant changed their system and they started using activated carbon and that got rid of the problem completely. But then the last couple of years, we've had very dry summers where we had a long period of time without any rain. So the water is warm, it's stagnant, the blue-green algae go crazy and the drinking water plant was able to make the water safe to drink, but they couldn't quite get rid of that taste. And that really got people's attention. And I hope that people are using that as a moment to educate themselves about the issues facing Lake Monroe and how important it is for us to take action. Because right now it's, it's a taste issue. It's not a safety issue, but it's still unpleasant and it's um, very expensive to treat. So it's much better to try and prevent those harmful algal blooms than to deal with it once it's happened. The city's utilities department has received complaints on its online U-Report system from dissatisfied residents. Last August, one resident wrote, quote, The water is tasting like dirt like it did last time this year. Is it possible to treat the water sooner this year? We had to buy bottled water for two months last year because it tasted so bad. End quote. Last September, one resident wrote, quote, The water is so terrible tasting and smelling that my family cannot drink it. We were forced to buy water. How long will this last? The foul smell and taste happens nearly every year. With CBU being the only source of tap water in Bloomington, there is no alternative. We are having to spend our limited resources to get drinkable water. 
we should at least get a decrease in water charges if CBU is unable to correct this issue permanently. End quote. In an interview with Big Talk producer Michael Glab, who also penned the article for the Limestone Post, director of the Bloomington Utilities Department, Vic Kelson, reiterated the smell and taste of the water does not pose a risk to public health. The blue greens, uh, when they're when they're in when they're, we have really high populations of blue greens in the water, uh, they they carry with them uh, chemicals called uh, geosmin and MIB methyl isobutyol, and those they're not hazardous. They they don't have any uh, health effects, but they do make the water smell like a lake or taste like a lake. Until 2017, that happened every summer for months. We had uh-huh. hundreds and hundreds of complaints. In 2017, as part of our efforts to reduce disinfection byproducts, we started feeding powdered activated carbon at the plant. And one of the side benefits of that was it took out the MIB and the geosmin until the last two summers when we had some long dry spells and then we had some big algal blooms in the lake and it was more than our treatment could handle. So uh, this year we're doing uh, what's called jar testing. We create uh, simulated raw water. Then we then we test it. We test different kinds of treatment approaches to see that if we can increase the amount of those things we can take out in case we have another algal bloom like that this year. We went almost five years with no customer complaints for taste and odor. Sullivan addressed residents' complaints and explained how the issue can be remedied long term. Well, this is not unique to Bloomington, but I think many of us take our drinking water for granted. We assume we're going to turn on the tap. We're going to have this nice, tasty, safe drinking water. And when we don't, it's really a shock. And so when we had those taste and odor issues last year, I know City of Bloomington Utilities took the brunt of the angry phone calls, but I had people calling me as well, asking what was going on. And I try to explain to people that this is an algal bloom And the issue is that it's very hard to get that taste out without spending a huge amount of money. And so there's this balancing act of do we as a community want to spend a huge amount of money to try and get rid of that taste for a few weeks? Or do we want to spend some money investing in uh, strategies that will try and reduce the frequency of this happening? And so we're looking at both. Honestly, it's, it's an issue that is going to come up again. This summer, I haven't noticed it. I don't think it's been an issue. We haven't had as high of algal counts. We've had a lot more rain. Uh, But the way to address it is to reduce the nutrient levels in the lake. And a lot of that is trying to reduce the amount coming in. So those nutrients, they're coming in with sediment. They're coming in with fertilizer runoff. They're coming in with manure runoff, uh, failing septic system runoff. So those are all things we can address at the source and work with landowners and land managers on different strategies to keep those things on the soil and out of the water. Now, I will say that this is a long-term process. This is not something that can be fixed overnight. There's also a lot of nutrients stored in the sediment at the bottom of the lake that are released in the summertime when the lake stratifies. And that's when um, the warm water raises, rises to the top and the cold water sinks to the bottom and it stops mixing. Then down at the bottom of the lake, the oxygen gets used up, it becomes anaerobic, and that allows the nutrients to cycle out and get released into the water. So we are working on reducing the amount of nutrients getting washed into the lake, but we know we'll also have to take into account it's going to take a while for the nutrients already in the sediments to cycle through and get used up. 
Um, the other thing, if we can figure out how to make it rain on command, you know, that, that would be really handy. But it, it's a long process. It's not an easy solution. But we absolutely have to start now because we need our drinking water supply to last as long as possible because that is an essential part of Bloomington and there's not an alternative. While officials maintain that the presence of cyanobacteria doesn't impact drinking water, the Indiana DNR warns of coming into direct contact with blue-green algae while swimming. The DNR states on its website to keep a close eye on pets and small children who may ingest water-containing toxins produced by blue-green algae. Exposure to this algae can lead to rashes, skin and eye irritation, and effects such as nausea, stomach aches, and tingling in the fingers and toes. The DNR advises to shower with soapy water after swimming. Tune in next week to hear more about Lake Monroe. How healthy is it, and how long will it survive? To read the full article written by Michael Glab and photography by Anna Powell Denton, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. To submit feedback to WFHB, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. Up next, artificial shopping on Better Beware your weekly Consumer Watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your Consumer Watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Hey, do you go online when you shop? I don't mean when you run down to the grocery store for a loaf of bread and a dozen eggs. I'm talking about when you're looking to buy something important, something expensive, or something you don't buy very often, like a car or an appliance or a tool, or when you're thinking of changing the kind of detergent you use to wash clothes, or maybe trying to figure out a wedding present for a nice young couple. I do that all the time, and when I do, I look at reviews of the different choices— and so do you, probably. The U.S. Public Interest Research Group says that 90% of people who shop online pay attention to reviews. But now, you'd better beware. There is an avalanche of fake reviews showing up all over the place. Now, this is nothing new. Unscrupulous vendors have long been writing rave reviews of their product and putting them up on websites like Amazon or Target or Lowe's or Best Buy. But now it's getting a whole lot worse because mountains of fake reviews are being generated by artificial intelligence programs, and they're getting so good it can be impossible to tell whether a review was written by a person or a computer. Scuzzy companies called fake review farms sell thousands of them. 
Last year, for instance, I wanted to buy a new air conditioner. And right now, I'm sure glad I did. Phew! First, I searched for best window air conditioner, and up came a bunch of websites that test air conditioners. Legitimate, established companies like Consumer Reports, Good Housekeeping, or CNET offer detailed tests and comparisons. But lots of things don't get tested that way, and the only reviews available are supposedly posted by people who have bought the product. At least 70 or 80 percent of those are usually five-star rave reviews. Hey, nobody writes a fake review that talks about problems and only gives a few stars, so I ignore the five-star reviews completely and look at the others. Sometimes bad reviews come from dum-dums who don't know what they're doing, but if the same problem shows up in several of them, it's probably real. There are some things being done about this situation. Amazon gets millions of reviews every day and say they blocked 200 million fakes last year alone. Some companies like FakeSpot have programs to detect fake reviews, but there doesn't seem to be a perfectly reliable one out there so far. Do a search for detecting fake reviews and you'll find a lot of advice, much of it very useful. And last June, the Federal Trade Commission proposed a new rule that would make it illegal to write fake reviews or sell them with hefty fines for violators. But even if that gets approved, it's still going to be up to you to spot things that sound too good to be true. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.